Welcome back to the Faculty Factory Podcast. On today's episode, we have Dr. Donna Vogel. Donna is a colleague and friend of mine from Johns Hopkins. She used to run the Professional Development and Careers Office, which is a wonderful um, office on Johns Hopkins campus for trainees, graduate students, postdoctoral fellows. And Donna would give tons of lectures and great coursework on communication and leadership and was well known for her day-long grant writing courses. So um, Donna agreed to be on the podcast today and talk about her top 10 list for uh, writing a grant. And um, I'll tell you more about how to get in touch with her later, but it is Dr. Donna Vogel, and that's dr.donna.vogel, V-O-G-E-L, at gmail.com. Donna, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? Absolutely fabulous, Kim. It's great to be on your podcast. I've really been looking forward to it. And let me start out by letting your audience know where exactly I get off telling you how to write a grant application. Before I came to Hopkins, and I was there for eight years, I was at NIH for 25 years. And 13 of those years, the thing I have done the longest in my life was I was a program officer or program director, and I ran a grant program in the extramural program of the National Institute of Child Health and Human Development. Specifically, my field was reproductive medicine, but I was also in charge of all of the training, career development, and fellowship grants for my entire branch. So, Over those years, I developed a lot of insider knowledge, you could say, about how the grant system works with a particular emphasis on grant mechanisms that help early career people. So I'm really delighted to be able to share some of that with your audience today. Well, yeah, Donna, I just just have to tell you that, and everybody else listening out there, that since you left Hopkins, there's been such a vacuum. Nobody is doing grant writing at Hopkins, and I'm just railing against all the powers that be. Um, it's such a, a vital and valuable resource for trainees and faculty members and so many people. I don't know why we keep assuming that, well, just trial and error. I did it the old-fashioned way. Don't give up. Keep doing it. Times are so tough now. I just think we're really shooting ourselves in the foot if we don't offer this, you know, tremendous resource to our trainees. But yeah, like, get us started, Donna. What do, what do we need to know? Okay. My top 10, and I frame this like the old David Letterman top 10, which some of your listeners may recall. I'm just going to go through them from 10 to 1. Okay. Number 10, read the NIH guide and get help. The NIH Guide is an online publication, comes out every week, but you can also read it more often than that if you want the latest news. And in there are all the latest announcements about what the institutes are interested in funding, specifically funding opportunity announcements, that's program announcements, requests for applications, where they have money or an interest in a particular topic. And if it turns out that they're interested in something you're doing, you really got a leg up on people who are working in other areas. They also use it to announce changes in announcements, changes in policy guidelines, what to do if your lab gets hit by a hurricane, all that sort of thing. So you must go to the NIH Guide for Grants and Contracts, just Google it and subscribe, and you'll get a weekly 
email, which will take you about 15 seconds to scan down and see if it's got anything that calls your name. Mm. The other thing is get serious professional help at your institution. If there are courses or workshops you can take, fabulous. If you need help with non-federal sources, and I think it's really important for people to understand that there are sources beyond NIH and NSF and other federal agencies, you can often get information from your Office of Sponsored Research or even from your medical or health sciences library where the informationists have access to databases of grants and grant opportunities that are not free. Mm -hmm. You can get some free information, but a lot of them are behind a paywall, and your library informationists can often help you finding those non-federal sources. Mm -hmm. Number nine, this seems like a no-brainer, but you have to take it seriously. Give yourself and your collaborators enough time This is particularly true if you have other people on your team in other departments or even at other institutions, and they have to go through their own hoops to get whatever sign-offs and whatnot, support letters that they need from their own local bureaucracy. So make sure you give not only yourself but also the other members of your research team time to get all their ducks in a row as well as to do the writing and the actual thinking that goes into the application. Well, how do we know how much is enough time? I say think months, Mm -hmm. not weeks, months, which is if you're applying for a particular opportunity, they're supposed to come out 90 days ahead of the due date. So that's around the right time. But there are ways to find out what the institutes are thinking about even before they may publish it, like have they done a workshop on that topic or have they spoken about it at a meeting you went to? So you may know what's already on their minds and you will be thinking about how to craft your application before they even announce it. So the more time, the better. Great. Number eight, know what the parts of an application are for. In my workshops, I often talk about the anatomy and the physiology of a grant application. And what Mm -hmm. I mean by that is it's not just a bunch of words. It's a bunch of words that serve a purpose. So, for example, there's a type of content called preliminary studies. It's not its own section anymore. It used to be but there are actually two different kinds of preliminary studies. Did you know that? There are preliminary studies that help establish why your topic is important that speaks to the significance criteria for NIH, but there are also preliminary studies that show the reviewers that you know how to do something or that your plan has a high likelihood of success, and that speaks to feasibility. Mm-hmm. So your Mm -hmm. writing serves a purpose. It is to convince the reviewers of something. And the more you understand what your writing is doing, the higher the chance that you will do it well. Number seven, choose a testable hypothesis that will give you interpretable data. 
And I'll just back up a second here and say that not every application is hypothesis-based. I certainly understand that in certain areas, particularly social sciences and qualitative research, you may have a research question that isn't exactly a hypothesis. Mm -hmm. So I mean research question when I say hypothesis, but whatever it is you choose, you have to have ascertained from your knowledge of the field that your question is important, but you have to frame it in such a way that the data you get can be interpreted. Mm -hmm. This is a very common failing. Don't just end up with a bunch of results at the end and then you don't know what to do with it. That's right. And, and avoiding the, the, the play, like the plague, that uh, criticism of being descriptive. Just how oh, descriptive. Yes. I like to describe something. Oh my gosh, you'll never get funded to, to describe something. So That's right. you're right, and turning it into a testable hypothesis or answerable question rather than describing something. Exactly right. There are, however, sometimes that you have to have an aim or part of an aim that yields descriptive data because they don't exist right. or because whatever normative data do exist aren't very good or are flawed in some way, so you've got to get better baseline data before you can do something sexier with it. In that case, I would advise you to bury it inside of a more mechanistic aim. You'll get those normative data, but you're going to get them as the beginning of something that's more exciting. Yeah. Sometimes you just can't avoid it. Yeah. Number six, remember pitfalls on alternatives and benchmarks. This is something that at NIH they always expected from you, but they didn't used to tell you about it. They just expected it and figured you ought to know all by yourself without them telling you. In recent years, the guidelines have changed. The application uh, documents have actually changed. So they say this explicitly, and it's really, really important. Pitfalls and alternatives, what does that mean? It means what will go wrong, mm. and when it does, what are you going to do about it? Right. So it might be that your method doesn't work, or it might be that your method works fine, but it gets you data that weren't what you were expecting. So think that through and put in a plausible alternative plan for what you will do when something goes wrong. The more you show you have thought about that, the, the happier the reviewers will be. Yeah, they I think really, that, really like this. I never actually thought about that, but I, I like the way you're putting that pitfalls in alternatives because you imagine a reviewer saying, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but when this, yeah, but when that, and boy, if they turn the page or move their eyeballs to the next paragraph and say that, yeah, I know you're thinking this, that, or the other, we've thought about that. They go, ooh, you get like kudos off the bat for anticipating those yeah, but, or the what if. So, yeah, I think that's super smart to, to anticipate um, plan B and plan C and plan D. There you go. And related to that is another new thing they've put into the application, which is benchmarks. Mm -hmm. And what that means is you have to anticipate where you're going, but then work back from it 
and say, how will I know that I am making progress? So you have to have measurable points that you can say, okay, I've gotten this far. Mm -hmm. And you put that right in the application. It's anticipating what you're going to look for step by step as you proceed towards your ultimate goal. Mm -hmm. Number five, make sure that all the parts are connected. What I mean there is you're starting with your overall hypothesis or your overall question. Your specific aims are going to grow out of your question. Then the approaches, the methods, the actual guts of the application, what you're going to do, will grow out of the aims. Your approaches, your methods, will yield results. Then what happens? Your results have to loop back and answer your question. Mm. Mm-hmm. Address your hypothesis. So everything has to be connected. Mm-hmm. And you need to make that very explicit in the writing. You really need to lead the reviewers by the hand and say, I'm getting from here to here, I'm getting from here to here, and now we're going to loop back, and this is how my results are going to address the hypothesis. Is it confirmed or not? That's right. Number four, show preliminary data, even if your funding opportunity doesn't ask for it. Some grant mechanisms, particularly the smaller ones, like the RO3 small grant or certain highly innovative type requests for applications, will not require you to include preliminary studies. But I would always say include them anyhow mm-hmm. if they're good. Mm-hmm. If you have bad preliminary data, that's going to come back and bite you. That's, okay. That does more harm than good. But if you have anything that supports, as we alluded before, either significance or feasibility, put it in because it's going to make your case stronger than if you had left it out. Mm-hmm. Number three. Things to beware of. Beware of the D word. We mentioned that already, descriptive. You brought that up. Beware of the A word. That's overly ambitious. Ah. Now, in the real world, ambition is a good thing. We all want to be ambitious. We all want to get somewhere in life. In a grant review, in that summary statement, it's a word you never want to see. Mm-hmm. Because what the reviewers are saying there is you have bitten off more than you can chew. Mm-hmm. And or you have not shown feasibility. You've set out to do something that you have not demonstrated you're able to do. So that's ambitious. It's something mm-hmm. you never want to see. The other things to watch out for. Sometimes... The application instructions or the funding opportunity will say that something is encouraged. If something is encouraged, what that really means, and I'm translating NIH speak here, Mm -hmm. it really means it's required. Required. (laughs) But legally, they're not allowed to say so. Uh So they're encouraging it, but they really want to see that. 
the flip side of that is if it says that something must be strongly justified, avoid it like the plague. Do not do that thing. Mm. I think once in 13 years I saw somebody strongly justify something that was asked to be strongly justified and actually get a fundable score and succeed. By and large, it means do not do this thing. Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh. And number two, know how the funding agency wants to spend its money and address that mission. Mm -hmm. You may have a great idea, but if you just throw it in and say, this is my great idea, and it doesn't fit with how the Institute wants to spend its money, it will only succeed if it has an absolutely fabulous score. Mm-hmm. If it's a little lower down, you've got a chance of getting funded if it fits into a high-priority area for that institute, if it's NIH, or for that non-federal organization, the foundation, disease society, whatever it may be. All these operations have mission areas that they should be pretty explicit. Sometimes the NIH institutes will even put a notice in the guide saying this is our list of high-priority topics for this coming year. Read those things and use them. It doesn't mean twist your best work around so it fits their priority, because then you're not going to do well if you're changing what your best shot is. If your best shot matches up with them, great. If there's any way at all you can say in that application, you're you're asking for this, I got that. Right. Put that right in there and remind them that you're doing what they want. And that's even more true, I would say, with non-federal funders because they often have a very specific mission. And you might be responding to what they say on their website is what they want to do. But in that case, I would say, take a look at who they've actually funded. Mm -hmm. Look where their money is really going. And it may turn out that something that's on their list is not getting a a lot of love. That's right. And 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 just because you uh, want to do something that's near and dear to your heart, and you feel like you're capitulating and giving in and chasing money and writing an application to do what they want, doesn't mean that when you get the funding, you can't do what you want. Also, I'm not saying instead of, I'm saying also, you Mm. say to them, I can do this. I have this. I have exactly what you want. Then -hmm. you get the funding and you find a way to leverage that to do or start doing what you want to do. So it's a nice inroad. So that's a great strategy. Mm -hmm. There are ways. And finally, number one, and this is the most important thing, talk to a human as opposed to a dog? As opposed to just reading the application information ah. and doing what it says. Because lots of times these things are confusing or poorly written or ambiguous, and you're going to have questions. Make sure you ask those questions of a knowledgeable person. And in the case of NIH or NSF, it's going to be your program official. The foundations and other non-federal funding sources have people with similar jobs who may not be called that. But always get in touch with the funder and ask them if what you're doing fits their mission 
or if you've applied to the right type of grant for somebody at your yeah. career stage, yeah. because not every institute uses every single grant mechanism, particularly the career development series and some of the other more out-of-the-way mechanisms, your small grants, some of the other highly innovative things. The institutes all use them differently. That's right. So make sure that the institute that is likely to fund you based on the scientific content of your work has the right mechanism for you at your career stage to do what you want to do because they don't always match up. And isn't that that's like so amazing when you tell people to contact the program officer, most people, 90%, I'd say, look at you like, really? I don't want to bother them. They're so busy. Mm-hmm. And that is like basic 101 grant writing. You want to build relationships with people. So just like you said, they might say, no, that's an interesting you know, idea, but that's really not good for us. But wow, it's been fascinating. Your area of work might be really great for such and such or... Think mm-hmm. about this. So they're, they're really, you know, they're scientists like you, and they want, their job is not to be gatekeeping and not giving out money. They want to support and be successful and um, steward, properly steward these research funds. So I think people are always amazed when I say, yeah, get in touch with the program officer, build a relationship with them. When they when you go to professional conferences, seek them out, introduce mm-hmm. yourself. Uh, that's how, you know, you get those kind of, inside information and people mm-hmm. then put a face with a name and mm-hmm. uh, a lot of things happen just by knowing people so I know you and I've talked many times over the years about like personality preferences and I'm an extrovert you're an introvert and I know this is maybe challenging for people who aren't <laughs> naturally inclined but and I know you've got lots of great talks and one of them is you know how to network in the professional societies and maybe we'll have you back on and talk about that but can you tell folks about like a strategy to getting up the courage to build those relationships and make those calls and talk to somebody you don't even know? Well, actually, Kim, I think you've already given a lot of the answer for me, which is, number one, remember they're scientists and you can talk science. Yeah. That's often easier than talking about a grant, per se. You can talk about what you're doing in some of your your recent work, and they love to do that. Yeah. Program officers love to be viewed as scientists, and they love talking science, so that's a great entree. Yeah. And you are also absolutely correct in that they really do want to help you, because if you do well, they do well. Mm-hmm. The institutes and their staff are constantly having to prove themselves to Congress that they're spending your tax money. Mm-hmm well and if you're doing good work and if they're helping you do good work that helps the field then that helps everybody and it it helps to have some some of your questions already figured out like is this the right grant mechanism for me Uh, should I apply for a K08 or a K23 things like that very specific but also this is what I'm interested in does it fit in your portfolio Mm-hmm. because the answer might be yes, and then you can proceed. And if the answer isn't, well, not quite, but right down the hall from me, two doors down, there's this other person, and that's right in her wheelhouse, then you've learned who the right person to talk to is, and they can even introduce you. Wow, exactly. 
Folks, wow, do you hear her? Isn't her voice, first of all, lovely? We've been learning a top 10 funding list, applying for funding, views from an ex-insider. This has been Dr. Donna Bogle. You can find her on LinkedIn and at doctor, that's D-R dot Donna dot Bogle, B-O-G-E-L, at gmail.com. I know she'll come to your campus. I know she loves doing freelance work. You just heard all this expertise there. Not only uh, was 25 years at NIH, also a former Jeopardy champion, just FYI. Donna, what do you want to leave us with? Any parting comments? Well, just that program officials really want to help you. And why is it that they want to help you? It's because they're dedicated public servants. No, it's really because <laughs> they, their job will be easier if you do it right the first time. Mm-hmm. And it'll save everybody time and effort and headaches and even money if you do it right the first time. Mm-hmm. So ask those questions. Love it. Thanks so much, Donna. Everybody, this has been Dr. Donna Vogel. You've been listening to the Faculty Factory podcast. We're going to get Donna back on here. She has a lot of great talks, and obviously, you know what I'm talking about. She's great. Lots of wisdom here. Till the next time, everybody. Talk to you later. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. The mission of the Faculty Factory is to build and support a community of leaders in faculty development who share tools, resources, wisdom, and encouragement in service to our faculty members, schools, and institutions. We encourage you to go to facultyfactory.org to find out more, get in touch with me, ask me any questions. Maybe you want to be interviewed on the podcast. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. We'll see you next time. The Faculty Factory Podcast and website is sponsored by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine Office of Faculty. For more information, visit facultyfactory.org.